0: Good evening everybody it's time for us to get started got to have got a good group here in the sanctuary and those of you streaming with us thank you for joining with us meeting with us on this Wednesday night Bible study if you are joining us just dropping in we are taking a mountaintop view of the thread that runs through the Bible and the line of history that runs through the Bible the love letter of God to us Uh, Beginning with Genesis, ending with Revelation, and we are now in the New Testament. Uh, So you've stopped in at a good time, and we're grateful to have every person who is with us in this study. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Lord, our God, thank you for loving us and for giving us this love letter, Lord. Thank you for every word of it. We know it is inspired. We know that it is inerrant. We know we can trust it. This is the word of God, Father. Within this word, there are over 7,000 promises that you make to your people, Lord. That you will be with us, that you will walk with us, that you will guide us, that you will heal us, that you will strengthen us, that you have a home for us for all eternity, Lord. Thank you for every promise, And, Father, we thank you that you have never broken a promise to your people. Lord, we love you. We are grateful to be in your house tonight. Thank you for those who join us here in the sanctuary, those who are streaming with us tonight at home, uh, those who are even in the parking lot with an FM signal tonight. Lord, we are grateful for every person who is joining in in this Bible study tonight. Bless us, we pray. Thank you that your banner over us is love, and we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good to have everybody here. Tonight is lesson number 22, Uh, the general heading, and this has been our heading for a couple of of weeks now. The Savior comes to us. That's the general heading of this section of the study. Tonight, lesson 22, is Gethsemane and the trial. It's where we are. So we're getting closer and closer to the crucifixion. Uh, That's coming up very soon as we continue in this study, but tonight is Gethsemane and the trial. So as Jesus began and continued his three-year ministry, he began his three-year ministry when he was roughly 30 years old, uh, and he gathered many followers. Of course, he had 12 disciples, but he also had many followers who were with him. And in fact, he may have had somewhat of an entourage of followers that stayed with him in the course of his ministry. Uh, And as we think about the followers who were with him, so many followers loved him and supported him and encouraged his work. But then there were also people who followed him because they questioned who he was. And they had not completely figured out this man who was a miracle worker and a preacher of the truth of God. So they followed, but many of them followed more in curiosity than anything as they were trying to figure out who this man is and, uh, and how his ministry was conducted. And then there was also a group who followed Jesus who were adamantly opposed to him. He developed over the course of his ministry, and this started early on, he developed a group of enemies. Those who were adamantly opposed to his ministry; those who wanted to remove him—not just from ministry, but wanted to remove him off the scene. They wanted him dead. They wanted him out of the world. Uh, so he developed this group while his word and his ministry was perfect and sinless. Yes, yet it developed. It developed those who were opposed to him. It reminds us that Jesus teaches us that the world. There were some in the world who hated him, and if we're going to truly be followers of him, there will be those who are opposed to us as well. He gave us that word, and he gave us that warning that not everyone is going to pat us on the back and encourage us as we serve him. But we're warned, and we are to see that uh, opposition come. Now, most of his opposition came from the religious leaders of the Jews. Of course, that was his own family, the Jewish people. The family from which he came, he claimed ancestry with the Jews, and yet many of his opponents were from his own family. Uh, We often mention the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were his basic opponents, they led others to oppose him. But who were they? Scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, let me give you just a brief description of who they are. Maybe you need to take a note or two to kind of be able to differentiate between these three groups. Scribes, they were authorities of the Jewish law. They interpreted the Word of God. For example, scribes took God's Word that said, You may not work on the Sabbath... That is the basic of God's Word. You may not use the Sabbath day to work. So scribes took that general rule, that law of God, and they interpreted it to to say this. You you may not work on the Sabbath, and that means that if you sit in a chair in your yard and you back up in that chair so that it digs into the dirt, you're guilty of plowing. (laughs) So that's how they would interpret the word of God. They, they strained it to the point that it was almost impractical, but the scribes interpreted the word of God in such an extremely legalistic way, sometimes very unrealistic way. And the interpretation of the law, if you want to write this word down, there is the law, the rule of God. The interpretation that the scribes give it is called midrash, M-I-D-R-A-S-H. Midrash, that's the interpretation of the law. Pharisees, we hear probably as much about the Pharisees as any other Jewish religious leader. The Pharisee was a conservative leader of the Jewish religion. They followed the law of God, but they also opposed the Roman government, they opposed the Greek thought of their society. So they worked to keep the Jews closely tied to the legalism of the Old Testament. They were strict. They were conservative. In fact, there was uh, one joke that circulated in ancient times that uh, Pharisees were called uh, bruised on the forehead. The reason for that was... That uh, if they were walking down the street, they kept their eyes on the ground, lest they would look at a woman and have any form of lust whatsoever. They were so legalistic, they kept their eyes on the ground so much that they would run into a pole. And so they would be called the bruised foreheads uh, of Pharisees. But they were very, very legalistic. Uh, They had no connection with the Sadducees at all. Uh, There was a strong dislike between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But the thing to remember about Pharisees is they did abide by the Old Testament law and they were very legalistic about it. Sadducees were opposites of the Pharisees. They were also Jews and they had integrated the Jewish culture into their religion. If you want to call them this, you could call them the liberals of the Jewish leaders. Now, in children's Sunday school, which you know was many years ago for me, I learned that Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And the way you remember that is they, the Sadducee did not believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Uh, so that's a little hook that you might remember what a Sadducee believes. Uh, but you can't forget that now. Uh, but I haven't forgotten it in 50 years. And and then uh, these Jewish leaders were so immersed in the law of God, the problem for them was, in all three cases, the problem for these leaders was that they were so immersed in the law that they couldn't see out of that box. Uh, they, They could not deliver the law of God to people with love. It was with legalism. It was with strictness uh the, Jew, the jesus threatened these jewish leaders uh jesus gave the law but he gave it in love he gave it with compassion and these groups could not understand that they they couldn't abide by that it pushed them out of the box in the way they taught the law of god so jesus threatened these leaders uh, and the all three groups came to the general conclusion that this Jesus needed to be removed from the circle of influence amongst the people to whom he ministered. Now, it's interesting, again, let me remind you that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were absolute opposites in the way that they approached the law. One was liberal, one was conservative. They did not eat together, they did not meet together very much, they were very opposite, and yet they had one thing in common, both groups said, let's kill Jesus. Let's remove Jesus from uh, ministry and from this world. So they did agree on one thing. Jesus told his disciples about this wave of opposition, this opposition that was going to come against him and also eventually would come against them. If you want to turn in your Bible tonight, we're going to be primarily in the gospel of Matthew. But Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5. Hear these words as Jesus talks about the opposition that these religious leaders are going to bring against him. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 1. And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes, And the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. So, a plan that's led by the scribes and the priests and the leaders of the people. Uh, and certainly that includes, includes the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they conspired against Jesus, and ultimately the plan was to kill him. But I want you to notice that they wanted to time their plot, according to this scripture, in such a way that it wouldn't disturb the normal routine of the people. Let's not do this during a holy day. When all the people are gathered together, when they're celebrating the holiness of God, because if we do, all of them gathered together might bring against us a riot. So let's not do this on a day that all of them are gathered together, but let's do it quietly and discreetly and behind everybody's back so that Jesus is removed and yet it doesn't incite a riot among the people who love him. So in other words, what they're saying as leaders is timing is essential in removing Jesus from influence amongst the people in fact the main thing the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to avoid was a change in their own position they didn't want to lose their position they did not want to lose their authority among the people why is that well quite frankly their life was very plush their life was lived in lip service to God. They were leaders among the people. They had the the respect of the people. People, as they walked by, would bow down to them because of their high position in their society. They lived a very comfortable lifestyle. They had money. They had popularity. They had the religious respect of people. And they didn't want to lose those perks from their positions. So they said we have to be very quiet, very discreet in the way we carry this out so we don't lose who we are in the eyes of the people. But how sad a picture this is when they say let's preserve our luxurious lifestyle of religion but let's kill the one who came to save us. How sad a lost mind is and a lost life is. Now, while we point to that attitude, I also want to say, as I look at these verses, we also have to be very careful to look at our own attitude. We have to be careful not to let our own lifestyle get so regimented toward our own money, toward our own vacations and comforts and perks and possessions and comforts, that we get so self-centered in our lifestyles that we relegate Jesus our Savior and his church to some far corner of our life. You know I think that's one of the great dangers of the church especially in a society like this that we can be so centered in what we have and all the things of a luxurious lifestyle that, that while we recognize Jesus and while we want to worship him so often he gets set off in a corner so we can do our own thing so we can uh, Have our own lifestyle and preserve that So I just believe we, we need to be very careful to say how do I serve him first and foremost in the midst of a very comfortable lifestyle What would he ask me to give up? What would he ask me to set aside? What would he ask me to lessen in degree so that i can step further forward in serving him and being his child and being involved in his ministry so we look at these pharisees and scribes and sadducees and say you know they want to preserve their own fancy lifestyle but if we're not careful we can fall into that same trap uh not to take too much time, but I, I just I have to tell you this. I, I, I've told this story many times. It, it really burned itself into my heart many years ago, back in the 80s, uh, when we had world missions conferences here. They've changed completely now. They've been relegated to just a one evening event. But it used to be all week that missionaries off the field would come, foreign missionaries and, uh, and missionaries from the United States would come share with us their ministries and it would be all week long we'd have a different missionary every night i'll never forget one he had just retired from a country in africa and i don't remember the country which one it was but i remember he was from africa and served as a missionary for 40 years there and as he was concluding his words to our church i remember distinctly him saying you know i know that you think that is, it's, it's a, a wonderful thing that I've given 40 years of my life and my wife and I have served in Africa and you must think that's a wonderful thing that this man traveled all the way to Africa and gave his life there and comes back to tell us about it. But he said, I don't want you to admire me. I'm humbled to stand among you because in my 40 years in Africa, I, I dwelt among a people who had nothing. And when I offered them Jesus they immediately came to him. They saw the worth in him. They had nothing, and they grasped onto Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, and they wanted to follow him. And he said, witnessing in Africa was completely easy compared to witnessing in America. You live in one of the hardest mission fields in the world because people have so much... That when you offer them Jesus, they just can't understand that they need him above all else. I'll never forget him saying that, how hard the mission field is here compared to an African mission field. Uh, Every mission field is difficult. We have one here tonight from a, a mission field. Uh, And I know that that mission field is very difficult, but everyone is difficult. And yet we know that we have to set everything aside. Everything is of lesser degree, and our ministry and our service to the Savior is to be first and foremost in our life. The Pharisees and the scribes failed in that. We have to learn that lesson. We can't fail in that. We can't let our our perks and luxuries take over our service to the King. Moving on. The night before the cross, as we go through the history of the Bible and the timeline of the Bible, we're getting now into the very heart of the message of God. All of the Bible revolves around what we're going to study in these next couple of lessons. The night before the cross, Jesus met with his disciples for the Passover meal, and he predicted his betrayal, and he instituted the Lord's Supper. Of course, he drew the Lord's Supper out of the Passover meal. What a great symbolism that Jesus draws the Lord's Supper out of the old Passover meal. The Passover meal signifying the remembrance of the death angel passing over Israel as they were captives in Egypt. And they were spared death as the blood of the lamb was on the doorways of their homes, and when the death angel passed through, taking the lives of the firstborn, of not just the human population, but even the animal population, when the death angel saw the blood on the doorways, death passed over the Israelites. And in the same way, Jesus draws the Lord's Supper out of that old Passover meal, saying, when God Almighty sees the blood of the lamb on the doorway of your heart, Death will pass over you. Remember the cross. Remember my body broken. Remember my blood shed. What a fitting symbol as Jesus pulls the Lord's Supper out of the Passover meal. As we think about that, we're so thankful for remembering what Jesus did for us and how his life and his perfect sacrifice gives us life. Well, during that supper, as you know, Judas Iscariot arises to leave early he has a task to perform he's going to go to to get the Roman authorities and he's going to lead them to Jesus for his arrest the disciple betrays the Lord in the garden of Gethsemane with a kiss he points out the Savior so he could be arrested and led on to trial and ultimately on to the cross And he receives a sum of money for his act of treachery, 30 pieces of silver. And as we think about that, we do know that that paycheck is prophesied in the Old Testament. You don't have to go there, but you might want to write this reference down. It's Zechariah, minor prophet Zechariah, chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Here's what the Bible says. And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price, if not forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Do you remember that uh, the place where Judas Iscariot committed suicide is called the potter's field? So amazingly, how the prophecy of the Old Testament comes is fulfilled right here in the betrayal of Jesus uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, how do these words tie in with what happened to Judas Iscariot? If you'd like to turn with me, it's Matthew 27. 1 through 8. Let's let's take a look at these words. Matthew 27, start with verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood and they said what is that to us see thou to that and he cast down the 30 pieces of silver or cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself and the chief priest took the silver pieces and said it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood and they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day now some have looked at this passage and said well it seems that judas iscariot came to Christ and was saved in these last moments of his life we see the word repentance here look at verse 3 again 27 3 then Judas which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned meaning that Jesus was condemned repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders basically what that says is he was sorry but he was sorry for the events that happened it does not seem that he came to Christ in saying, I'm sorry for my sin, forgive me of that. He was just sorry for the events and the way that they happened. And so he committed the ultimate act. He took his own life, and that silver was used to buy a field called the potter's field, field of blood. But I don't see this as evidence that Judas Iscariot was saved. He did repent, but he was. But repentance in this in this form, and what we see used here is repentance in that he was sorry for the events and the way that they played out. He was sorry for the way it happened. But it didn't seem that he was sorry for his own sin, that it would bring forgiveness. Also, as the group leaves the upper room that night after the Lord's Supper, on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says someone else, he knew when Judas Iscariot left the supper early, that he was going to betray him. In fact, if you remember in the Lord's Supper, Jesus offers Judas Iscariot the sop. That's a symbolism for saying, I'm giving you one more chance to change your mind. The sop is offered to the special guest of the meal. And he's saying, Judas Iscariot, I want you to be the special guest because tonight you can change your mind. Your heart can change. But Judas Iscariot goes on out to commit that act of betrayal against, his, against the Lord. It wasn't his Lord, it was against the Lord. But as they leave the upper room that night, Judas Iscariot long gone, going to get the Roman authorities, Jesus said, someone else is going to betray me. Look at Matthew 26, 30 through 35. Matthew 26. 26:30 And when they had sung a hymn they went out into the mount of olives then saith Jesus unto them All ye shall be offended because of me this night for it is written I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad by the way that's from Zechariah 13:7 But after I am risen again I will go before you into Galilee Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, I will not deny thee likewise also said all the disciples well of course as a student of the Bible you know what does happen even though Peter protests by saying hey man I'm willing to die with you I'm going to be the last one to leave you I would be the last one on earth to deny you but you know later on that night Peter denies Jesus three times And, of course, when he does, and that cock crows, and he realizes what he did, Scripture teaches us that he weeps bitterly that he had done exactly what Jesus said he would do. Well, as the group gets to Gethsemane, it is very dark. And Jesus asks his disciples to stay awake, to support him in this burden that he's carrying as he's praying. And he says, I want you to pray with me. I want you to to be with me and support. I want you to stay awake tonight. I want you to be with me in this burden that I carry and the weight of the world on his shoulders. And of course, you know, even though he requests that they stay with him and support him, they fall asleep. And in his agony, with his disciples sleeping rather than supporting, in his lonely agony, his solitary moment with God the Father, he asks a, a key question of his Father. Matthew 26, verse 39, and also verse 42. Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine, And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And then if you flip over to verse 42, which is just a little bit down the page, and he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. We need to note the reluctance of Jesus asking his Father, Is there any way, Father, that we can do this some other way? Is there any way that this cup of suffering could be removed from me? I think that is so interesting that Jesus would request of God the Father, If there's another way, Father, Let this cup be removed from me. I've always, from a young person forward, just been intrigued by Jesus carrying the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, saying, is there any other way to do this, Father? He asked to be released of the awful ordeal ahead of him. You know, the Bible describes Jesus, and Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. It's a concept that logically we can't really wrap our arms around. We think about Jesus being fully, fully man and fully, fully God. And yet that's how the Bible presents Him. That's how Jesus presents Himself to us. Fully man, fully God. Fully God in that He could stop the storm on the sea with a word. Fully God in that He could give sight to the blind fully god in that he could forgive sin and yet fully man in that he could feel pain and emotional stress we see emotional stress in the garden of gethsemane fully man in that he feels what we feel you know there was a there was a thought maybe it still exists today in some form or fashion but years ago this this theology this thought was called docetism if you want to spell that it's d-o-c-e-t-i-s-m docetism and docetism made the statement that Jesus only appeared human he was fully God and he played the charade of being a human so that he never had to feel pain he never had to feel loss he never went through emotional stress he was God he was clothed in flesh but he was still fully fully God he was in a charade in the flesh but I believe as we look at this request and as you see this request in your Bible on your lap you need to underline it because it shows us the true humanity of Jesus father if it is all at all possible don't make me go through this Take this cup of suffering away from me. Don't make me drink this bitter cup. But God says, no, son, this must be done to forgive a rebellious world. There is no other way than for the perfect lamb to die. And, of course, you know, in that verse 42 that I read, the second verse, Jesus says, I will accept the cup, Lord God, my Father, if this is the only way. It has to be done for a rebellious world. And, of course, after this deep and intimate and gut-wrenching communion with God the Father, Judas Iscariot then commits his act of betrayal. And Jesus is arrested and led off. And he's taken to Caiaphas, the high priest. Also remember, in this time of prayer, just prior to his betrayal by Judas Iscariot, Jesus is sweating blood. And that is truly a medical condition In fact, as we look at the crucifixion, I'm going to give you a piece of an article uh, that came out from a a highly regarded medical group uh, that talks about the fact that the medical condition truly is a person can be under such emotional strain that the capillaries under the skin break and you truly do sweat blood. It's a combination of sweat that comes from the emotional strain and blood mixed with it because the capillaries have broken under the skin. It's an interesting thing, but it's truly a medical condition. Jesus coming to his trials, and there are multiple meetings throughout the night. Think about this one who is going to go through beatings and trials and all of the emotional strain of the night. And if you recall, Jesus is absolutely silent, in what he goes through in these trials. It's the fulfillment of a prophecy. This prophecy was written 700 years before in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he openeth not his mouth. The prophecy of the lamb getting ready to die. And finally, because Caiaphas couldn't bring a rise out of him, as he questions him and as he taunts him, and he can't get a word out of Jesus, he, hi, Caiaphas goes over the edge, the high priest, he's just so frustrated, and he screams this order to Jesus, if you want to write it down, it's Matthew 26, verse 63. So Caiaphas, the high priest, says this to Jesus. Jesus held his peace... And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee, I command thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus simply said, You have said that I am. That statement is enough to accuse Jesus of blasphemy and he is sentenced to death. Now, Jews did not practice crucifixion for the death penalty, Jews practiced stoning, as Stephen was stoned to death, as the woman caught in adultery was going to be stoned to death. So, capital punishment for the Jewish nation was stoning, not the cross. If Jesus was to go to a cross, it had to be a Roman sentence that sent him to the cross. Uh, the cross was a Roman execution. It was reserved for the very worst of criminals. Women were not crucified, only men, and only the worst of men in the the realm of being a criminal. But the Roman government had to ratify the sentence. So they bring Jesus to the Roman governor, whose name is Pilate. And Pilate tries to avoid the sentence. Something deep in Pilate, even though he was not a Christian, he was not a believer, there was something about the man that he didn't want to deliver this sentence. He didn't want this man to die. He tries to avoid it. Even his wife comes to him and says, I had a dream. Don't, don't, don't kill this man. Don't sentence this man. If you want a, a, a scripture reference for that, it's Matthew twenty-seven. Verse 19. And when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. So even his wife, in wisdom, warns Pilate, don't sentence him to death. But the Jews persist. The scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders were so persistent about him dying now remember the Jewish population was under Pilate's control along with a Gentile population so basically he had two different groups of people who were politically minded and he wanted to kind of walk the line in the middle and keep both of the groups happy and he knew if he denied death to Jesus that he was going to make a lot of the Jewish population very unhappy with his government so he was on this tightrope and that he felt he should not sentence Jesus to death. And his wife warns him, I've had a dream. It's tormented me today. Don't sentence him to death. And yet the Jews are coming and coming saying you need to put him to death. He's a rabble rouser. He's, he's going to remove you from your seat of authority. And he wants to keep that population happy. So in the final attempt to wiggle his way out of this, he offers a choice. And you know what it is. Jesus or as a practice of the day he brings out this heinous convicted criminal out of the jail whose name was Barabbas and he sets the two men before the Jewish population and says which one is to go to the cross I free the one that is not chosen to go to the cross and he thinks he has the ace in his hands because Barabbas was a hated criminal. Most likely he was a murderer, probably a multiple murderer, and the community was absolutely scared of him, and so Pilate thought he had the ace there. And yet the Jewish leaders whip up the crowd for a call that just continues to chill my spine. To hear in my mind this crowd chanting over and over and over again crucify him crucify him and with every time they repeated it probably gets louder and louder and barabbas is allowed to leave isn't it interesting to think maybe one day if maybe barabbas stood in that crowd and watched the crucifixion he literally could think he took my place But it's true, every one of us is a Barabbas, a sinner before God, and he took our place. To me, there's no more moving scene than what we're moving into here. As Jesus goes through the trials, goes through the punishment, goes through the crown of thorns, and, and all of the ordeal that he endures even before he gets mounted to the cross we're entering into the centerpiece of the Bible and the centerpiece of how and why we're saved. This is, this is the high point of the love letter of God. He loves us so deeply that he would lay down his life for us. So tonight we're going to end there. There's no more moving scene. Nothing has more gravity or weight in the Bible than this very moment. And so we will pick it up next week and we will go on. Uh, to Lesson 23, as as we consider the center point of the message of God's love letter to us. Streamers, thank you for joining us tonight. Let's end with a word of prayer. Our Lord, our God, thank you, Father. We are right now standing at the centerpiece of the Bible, Lord the crucifixion of the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice of the Bible, the final sacrifice because it is the perfect Lamb. We thank you, Father, that we consider that picture perhaps as Barabbas, that convicted, heinous criminal stood in the crowd and literally he could stand there and say, that man on the cross is taking my place. But Father, that word is for every one of us. Jesus on the cross literally took our place of punishment that we deserve for our own personal sin, our unrighteousness, our wickedness before God, and things, that we say, and things that we say, and things that we think, and things that we do. So, Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. He asked in the Garden of Gethsemane that this cup of suffering be removed from him, and yet he said, Lord, my Father, not my will but thine be done. If this is your will, I will will die for Mike Fitzgerald. I will die for every person in the world, Father. We are humbled when we put our name in that place. I will die for. Tonight, Father, thank you for your love letter to us. Thank you for the, the nature that we understand of your love for us, that you would lay down your life that we might live. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for where we are as we study it. And the thread of the Bible that goes from the beginning to the end is how much Jesus loves us. How much the Lord God Almighty loves us and planned our salvation before the very foundation of the world. And here we are studying it right now, Lord. We're humbled and we thank you in the strong name of Jesus Christ we pray tonight. Amen. Good night all. Thank you for joining us.